0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sundays, please visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Good morning, River's Edge, and welcome to the Sunday Podcast. I'm Matt Deason, and I'm here with Kelly Walters, who will be doing the bulk of the teaching this morning as we continue and conclude our series on practicing the way of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. But before we jump into the text this morning, I just wanted to say a quick thank you to all of you who have been giving, not only to the church, but also to our global partners. Our brothers and sisters, in the Philippines and in South Africa are being hit harder by the coronavirus than we are. And many of them have been left without a way to make a living or even feed themselves. And so we decided to step up as a church and commit to helping them see this thing through. And the response from our community has been amazing. Uh, Not only have we been fasting and praying for our brothers and sisters around the world, but we've also been giving as well. And we've had thousands of dollars come pouring in above and beyond our normal giving, purely for the purpose of supporting our global partners uh, in these churches in the Philippines and in South Africa. And in fact, we had one guy who doesn't even go to our church who heard what we're doing and cut a check for a thousand dollars. And I've just been so inspired just to see uh, the generosity of our community. And we've uh, begun distributing that money around the world, and we're. we're. We're slowly getting pictures and videos back from these different nations with stories of provision and gratitude and pictures of food being distributed to those who are in incredible need right now. So thank you so much for joining us as we fasted last Wednesday, and for all of you who have been praying, uh, not just for our community, but for our brothers and sisters around the world. And thank you to those who have been giving as well. It's been such a crucial time for us to be able to continue to operate as a church and to give to those in need. And your generosity has been such a source of joy, uh, both here and abroad. And so we are going to... Continue in sending our support, and if you would like to give, it's as easy as jumping on the website and making a gift to the church while mentioning our global partners in the memo line, if you want it to go specifically for that purpose, Um, or uh, sending a check again with that in the memo line. So uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, Many of you know that we've started a midweek podcast purely aimed at navigating the coronavirus and the situation in which we find ourselves, so we'll continue to release those on Wednesday mornings. But in the meantime, we want to continue and conclude the series that we've been working through on Sundays on practicing the way of Jesus. So originally, uh, I was supposed to be in South Africa this Sunday, connecting with many of our global partners from around the world, and uh, Kelly was slated to teach on our final practice, which is engaging the outsider. So we'll move forward in unpacking that this morning as we finish out our series. Uh, Kelly, uh, any initial thoughts on just engaging the outsider as a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline?
1: Yeah, and actually since, Matt, you uh, gave me the option to uh, take this topic of engaging the outsider, I've been thinking about it for a couple months, and really looking as Diane and I have been going through the, uh, the Gospel of Luke and doing devotional uh, time with uh, working it through, I've been noticing things about Jesus and how he uh, reached people, and it's, it's very, very clear in my mind that the way he reached people was so different from often the way we in, our, in the modern uh, American church do. It doesn't take much time studying the life and practice of Jesus to see that engaging the outsider or reaching the lost is not merely a part of the gospel message and call. It can be argued that at, it's really at the very heart of the gospel. You know, from the moment of the fall in the garden to the final judgment, God is at work to redeem a lost and rebellious world and bring into his kingdom people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And the word gospel literally means good news. As Jesus said, he did not come to those who were well. He came to those who were sick. And he's a shepherd that leaves the 99 who are in the fold to seek the one who has wandered away. In a very real sense, we all started as outsiders. And Romans 3.23 declares that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus told Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. None of us, even those born and raised in the church, start the life as insiders. We must be born again. And many of us, when we are brought into his kingdom, experience such a revelation of joy, love, and freedom that we want to tell everyone. I don't know about you, Matt, but... Uh, for right. myself, I, I remember being so excited, uh, even in junior high about the Lord and coming back from camp and singing the, the songs and so forth. Uh, we are so compelled by the love of God to reach those on the outside. In addition, when we begin to grow in our knowledge of the scriptures, we find that we are called to be lights in the world, salt of the earth, ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Christ. We are, then when we learned the Great Commission, we were called to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey everything he has commanded us. So most true believers, I think, have a desire to reach the lost for Christ. And we also know that we have a responsibility. We have a sense that we really should be engaging the outsider. But somehow, I think many of us struggle doing it. Oh, totally. Yeah, and I think
0: there's so many reasons why we struggle. Uh, I think part of it is that we live in a culture that is increasingly post-Christian, in which many people um, actually don't know the gospel, but they think that they do. Uh, They think they know what Christianity is about. And Within that framework, Christianity is more or less seen as sort of an outdated, regressive thing. Uh, If only we could get rid of it, we'd be better off. It's a thing of the past. Uh, It's homophobic. It doesn't mesh with science and our modern understanding of the world. Uh, It's only going to hold us back, is sort of the vibe that... I think you you get increasingly from the secular culture. And so I think there's more pressure or a subtle sense of almost cultural shame now, uh, more now than there has been in, in decades past. And what the scriptures call the fear of man, I think, can kick in. And in thinking about my own story, I was raised in a very loving sort of secular household uh, that was very much in line with the modern progressive view of the world. And I remember my parents talking to me once when I was young and explaining social etiquette to me as a kid. And they said, there's three things you should never talk about uh, at a friend's dinner table. Uh, Sex, politics, and 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 religion. religion. Uh, and just avoid those topics. And so it was sort of ingrained in me, uh, even as a new Christian that you aren't supposed to talk about your faith, that socially, uh, in our culture, it's very taboo. You let people believe whatever they believe and don't venture into that topic because it's only going to be offensive, uh, but I think despite carrying some of that fear of man and despite this childhood training that said hey don't share your faith uh, I think it was very natural for me as a new Christian to share my faith uh, encountering Jesus was the most miraculous and, and exhilarating thing that had ever happened to me I had this electric hope that was just sort of buzzing in my veins I had to share it mm-hmm. and it was so natural I think sometimes we can make it so unnatural and we think like oh yeah sharing that's like I need a mega I need a horn or something and yeah. it was just the total opposite of that it came up in conversation all the time and when i when i first came to christ i was surrounded by non-christian friends essentially none of my friends were walking with jesus so i was surrounded by quote outsiders uh, and I, I want us to be sensitive with that term because sometimes it can create like an us versus them mentality, right. but by outsiders, we just mean people outside of the kingdom who don't know Jesus, who haven't encountered him. And I was surrounded by those people and constantly sharing, uh, quite naturally and in a non threatening way, uh, just my faith and the hope that, that Jesus offers. Uh, I felt, I felt most of the time, like they would bring it up for me. It would just flow. Like it just, it just happened. Uh, it wasn't a forced thing at all. But over time... I can chart this path that uh, as I began to get more involved in serving in the church, and I slowly made my first Christian friends, which was a new thing to me. And then slowly over the course of years, it shifted to where eventually all of my friends were followers of Jesus. And I was serving more and more in the church and in leadership and growing a ton, and eventually became a pastor. And now, as a pastor, like the huge bulk of my time is spent with disciples of Jesus, and I have less and less contact with with um, my f- friends that that aren't followers of Jesus and so I think that's a natural progression for most people, not to become a pastor or right. whatever, but to just get more and more involved, uh, to invest in biblical community, which is what we call people to do, but then in the process to lose many of the, their non-Christian friends or their non-Christian community in the process. And uh, there's lots of reasons for that too, in terms of kind of circling up the wagons and feeling like, oh, I don't want to be like, you know, influenced by this culture that kind of wants to pull me away from God or whatever. And before you know it, we've kind of circled up and we're building one another up in love, but we fall out of practice. We don't have non-Christian friends, uh, and sharing our faith can become less and less natural over time, Uh, which is why I'm actually framing all of this as a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline, because most of us start strong, and then we tend to lose this practice over time. Uh, And honestly, Kelly, that's one of the reasons I wanted you to take this teaching, because you've been following Jesus for decades— And not only are you and Diana so keen to disciple and raise up those who are already following Jesus, but people just always seem to be coming to faith around you, like the people that you interact with and reach out to. And it just seems so, at least from my perspective, it just seems so natural for you guys to be connecting and inviting and outsiders and people who don't know Jesus and just having eyes for them and creating inroads for them to encounter Jesus. So maybe you could talk us through that. What does it look like to engage outsiders as a, as a spiritual discipline?
1: Um, yeah, I'd love to do that. And I, as you were describing, uh, Diane and I, uh, as these uh, kind of evangelist types, uh, I was just reflecting on that because I, I have thought for years, I've thought, well, I'm not much in the way of an evangelist. I don't have a gift of evangelism. Um, and so as you were saying that, I was thinking, well, that doesn't sound like—and I, and I think this is true. I don't think that is sounds like how I would have been described, let's say, 20 years ago. Right. And so I think and I hope that we're growing, and I think we're growing. And some of the things that I'm going to be talking about really I think are coming out of that. Um, like you said— we are excited about our faith. I've continued to be excited about my faith from the time I got saved, really. But then we get out of circulation in a sense. So we get disconnected from right. people. The cool thing, though, to me, the amazing thing, is that what we see in the life of Jesus is not that. And and as you were talking, and it wasn't one of my points I was going to bring up, but as I was talking, I was realizing that Jesus started, he literally started... Uh, <laughs> More on the inside than any of us, right? He with the Father, Son. I mean, with the Father and the Holy Spirit, right? <laughs> right. The ultimate in the insider, right? Yes. He was. He, the, you know, he had it good. He was in heaven, and and so the first thing that uh, that I, w- I noticed in, in, in thinking about that, I think, is a powerful, powerful, uh, not just a theolo- theological point, but but a practical point is the point the kind of the principle of incarnation. So Jesus right. demonstrated his love for the world as we know by leaving heaven and becoming one of us. And, and I'm going to read a scripture that so perfectly um, encapsulates this, but uh, I, I really would encourage um, all of you who are listening to, to think deeply about this because it's so profound, and especially if we think, how do we then uh, follow suit? Uh, Philippians 2, 5-7 to says, Your attitude should be that of Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, there he is in the Trinity, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or to be clung to, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. Eugene Peterson, uh, in the message, translated John one fourteen like this, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. So this first point is that Jesus uh, was... His whole, his whole mission, really, was uh, diving deep into relationships. He embedded himself with his, his primary family. I don't know if you've thought about this, but embedded himself with his primary family and village for 30 years. Came on a m- mission to redeem humanity, but he spent 30 years probably in the same town. Right. before he ever started this ministry. And then when he does start his ministry, he, start, he selects 12 disciples and proceeds to live, eat, drink, sleep 24-7 with these men for three and a half years. And this pattern didn't stop there. He continued to go from town to town, engaging with real people in their homes at weddings, funerals, dinners. In the modern church in the West, we have put a lot of effort to finding ways to get the outsider to come to us, come to the building, come to an event. And if you do show interest, we subtly, I think, usually without even knowing it, imply that these seekers need to change their dress, change their language, change their lifestyle if they're going to fit in with us. Jesus, on the other hand, uh, he went into their world, and he was so engaged with the outsider that the religious leaders accused him of being a drunkard and gave him the insulting label, friend of sinners. Mm. We're not usually accused of that right, as (laughs) believers. Um, and so if we're going to practice this way of Jesus, we have to start with this uh, this principle, this challenging principle. We need to build deep, long-term relationships with real people, with real problems where life is messy and uncomfortable. Can we engage with the outsiders in such a way that without compromise, we too can be accused of being friends of sinners? Wow. I think a lot of us, myself included, have done the, um, the the kind of evangelism effort where you go downtown and you hand out sandwiches to people who are homeless or you witness the people on the streets or back in in my day as a younger Christian you have these tracts that you pass out to people on the corner and I've done some of that done some door to door thing but the problem with that it really wasn't following the model even though people get saved from that and it's not necessarily a bad thing but but the model of Jesus was going deep uh, yes he ministered to many People to multitudes at times, but he spent the majority of his uh, of his efforts, the majority of his ministry uh, with a small number of people and spending time in their homes and in their lives. Uh, so an example of this for me uh, happened a long time ago when I was seventeen years old, I headed off to college at the University of Oregon, and my big brother had joined a fraternity when he was in college, so I thought, that since I didn't know anyone down at the school, I might as well check out the possibility of doing the same thing. Ironically, the same year, a popular, though not recommended movie filmed on the Oregon campus came out depicting the excesses of fraternity life. It was aptly named Animal House. For many young Christians, joining a fraternity would be the worst thing to do. I would not recommend it. I still don't think I'd recommend it. Um, Yet I had one small advantage over a lot of Christians— I had absolutely no interest in the lifestyle. Um, and so I went into this thing that is called Rush Week and going to event after event, kind of getting to know uh, the people in the different houses and, and basically party after party. And I stopped going to the events about halfway through and crossed the whole idea of uh, idea off as, this is not my scene. Uh, then one of the houses kept pursuing me, so I decided to do something I'd never done before nor I'd ever heard of anyone doing it. Before there was ever a bracelet or a bumper sticker with the cliche, I got on my knees and asked the question, what would Jesus do? Hmm. I wasn't a church kid, and and I wasn't an evangelist with the delusion of leading sinners to the altar, but I had read my Bible, and I knew that Jesus was a friend of the party animals. I knew that I needed to learn how to relate to those people. Hmm. Um, So at the end of the the last minute, I changed my mind and pledged. And that would become my home for the next three years. Wow. So I don't think uh, I ever really learned how to be comfortable <laughs> at the parties <laughs> or how to be a cool Christian. Right. Um, but I did make some friends, and I did share my faith when I could. Uh, times I was really lonely, and some guys made fun of me and openly expressed that it. E- even in kind of a compassionate way at sometimes, like they would ask, like, why are you here? I don't right. really understand it. <laughs> and um, but God started adding some other guys to the house that were believers, or were her, oh, or um, who were open to faith. And my roommate and I even started a Bible study um, after a couple years, and it grew. And God moved in some amazing ways. Some guys got saved, others got filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, the climate changed, the culture wow. changed. In fact, I remember one. Um, one moment that I'll never forget in a chapter meeting, one of the, the guys who wasn't a believer um, stood up and he started complaining, went on this rant about how we were losing our edge that we used to be known as the party house. And, and then, <laughs> but the guys were going off and doing and they were studying instead of going to parties and he was really upset. <laughs> and, uh, and it was such a it's such a wild rant that his um, that it was almost like a caricature of something, a speech in a movie. Oh, and wow. so a buddy of mine was sitting next to me and started hymning the battle hymn of the Republic. And pretty soon everybody <laughs> was was hymning it and kind of <laughs> oh making fun gosh. of this guy and his rant. But uh, but any, anyway, in that time, there's a change in the house. It was amazing. Mm. Um, so I, I think uh, what happened is that when a few of God's people joined the house, Jesus came along too. And so I was thinking perhaps the new American fraternity version of John 1.14 would say something like this the word became flesh and blood and moved into the frat house. <laughs> so that's what happened. Um, an amazing look at how one might practice the incarnational lifestyle in the context of your own neighborhood, uh, you can find in a book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield. Right. And Rosaria herself was led to Christ out of a gay activist lifestyle by a pastor and his wife who hosted weekly dinners and discussions with her for several years. And so now she and her family, does, they basically do the same thing with their neighbors. They engage with them in a way that, ch- that really challenges me uh, when I read the book to uh, walk a more authentic Christian life. So, the second thing I see in, in uh, Matt with the ways of Jesus and the example of Jesus is persistent prayer. We see that he began and infused his ministry with persistent prayer. He spent 40 days in the desert resisting temptation and seeking his father. And when he came out of this time of seeking, the word declares that he returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Likewise, the disciples were told in John 1.8 to wait in Jerusalem till the Holy Spirit comes and you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and we often divorce prayer, I think, from witnessing. Hmm. Yet Jesus demonstrates the two are intrinsically linked. In John 15, he tells his disciples, if a man... Abides in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit apart from me, you can do nothing, right. Of course, we also see Jesus modeling this life of dependence on prayer. The Gospels record over and over that Jesus was that Jesus, as his habit, got up early or went away to a lonely place to pray i've often found it interesting that the Son of God found it necessary to get away to pray, like if Jesus needed to do this, then how much more do we? Mm. You know, it's not, clearly, uh, it's not exactly clear why Jesus needed to do this. I don't think the scripture really explains this, but certainly in my case and most believers, I think, um, there's at least three reasons that we need to connect our witness with our prayer. Uh, first of all, prayer changes our hearts. It is only through asking the Lord that we can be transformed by him. So we often begin by asking him to do something for us. Then we come away having experienced him doing something in us. And secondly, I think prayer positions us so that God can anoint us with his power. In the life of Jesus, we almost always see him share the word of God right alongside the works of God. The word reveals truth and the works reveal God's power. So we need to pray to receive that power. And the third thing I see is that the prayer positions us so that we can get God's direction. In Luke 6, 12, we see Jesus went up to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, the text tells us he calls his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles.
0: Hmm.
1: And I think we forget sometimes that Jesus did not heal everyone that came near him. He did not go to every town and preach in every synagogue he did not even follow up all who showed an interest in following. He did not even select all of his disciples to become apostles. Some people he called to follow him, and others he told to stay where they were at. So I'm convinced that one of the reasons that we feel so inadequate in engaging the outsider is that we are prayerless. Hmm. Sure, we may pray about personal issues and pray about our little family and church circle, but what if we applied this principle, or excuse me, this practice of Jesus and regularly took time to intercede for others, especially for those who don't know Christ? What would happen if we took time at the beginning of each day to pray with the prophet Isaiah? Here am I, send me. So when I think about that, uh, one kind of dramatic example of that that changed my life and our family's life was seven years ago this month. I decided to spend a week meditating on Ephesians 5.1 that says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. On the third day of this meditation, I went on a five-mile run with the goal of spending the entire run praying the scripture. As I pondered the part of living the life of sacrifice, I specifically asked the Father if Diana and I were living sp- sacrificially. Our last kid had left the house and we were enjoying the life of empty nesters. I prayed, Lord, is there a way that you want us to love that requires more sacrifice? The prayer was still on my lips as I jogged into the parking lot of the school where I was parked. At that very moment, a teacher friend of mine walked out of the school and turned to me and asked, Hey, Kelly, do you want to take a kid in? She was suggesting Sarah, one of my recent students who had had, uh, bounced around between several foster homes the last couple years it was so dramatic, seemed on the surface so obvious that when I had prayed, it was like I had knocked and the door opened with this wow. opportunity. Right. And so I came home and told Diana, but we had learned years ago that we wanted to be careful not to just jump impulsively because it looked like God had spoken to us or it looked like circumstances had opened up for something. And so, uh, so we decided to start praying in earnest for Sarah. We thought, well, at the very least, perhaps he wanted us to prompt us to pray for her into a family that could be a blessing to her. So we prayed, and we prayed, and we talked to our family and our friends and our pastor and asked them to pray about this possibility. Is God leading us to do this? And what happened is that the more we prayed, the more God moved our hearts. Kind of back to that point that often when we pray, God changes our hearts. So the more we prayed for her, the more God moved our hearts. After a while, we not only wanted to take her in, we felt compelled to make a serious commitment to her. Wow! And it was at the point, to the point where I started to worry when maybe there might be some other thing that would happen and she wouldn't Hmm.
0: (laughs) be put in our house. Yes.
1: Uh, It was strange just because of what God had worked in our hearts. So when we took her in, we knew that God had led us. He had called us to spiritually adopt this young woman whom we barely knew. And by the clear direction of the Spirit, we could not only invite her in, but we could invite her to be a part of our family for good. We told her that first week, you are now a part of our family as long as you want to be. Hmm. Now, next week, Sarah plans on moving into an apartment with a few friends. She has now lived with us for six of the past seven years. Wow. She's now not a high school kid. She's 23. Hmm. Um, But we fully consider her to be our fourth kid. To be sure, it has not always been easy for her or for us. um, But overall, it's been one of the most miraculous, beautiful things ever happened to our family. Hmm.
0: Yeah, I love that picture. Um, Not only going back to the fraternity story of just, I love that as like an image for culture. And it actually mm-hmm. reminds me a lot, I'm reading through the book of Acts right now, mm-hmm. and it reminds me of like what happened in a lot of towns where like followers, small numbers of followers of Jesus would come in and influence the whole culture mm. to the point where like the people who are making fashioning idols in Ephesus riot, you know, like yeah, the, he right. stands up with that speech where he's like, yeah. brothers, look what's happening <laughs> yes, to our great we're city. We're not partying you know? like we used right. to. We used to party for <laughs> Artemis, and now like what is, what's happened? Uh, That's and true. And so I love that as like an image for cultural change. Yeah living incarnationally and saying, Jesus, where do you want me? But I also love the other story because it's such a powerful picture of an open door mm-hmm. of saying like our home, our lives are open to, mm-hmm. um, to, to outsiders in every sense of the word. Mm-hmm. So like there's just this, you almost create this vacuum of space in your heart and even mm-hmm. in your home that God says, ah, I see that. Like I see mm-hmm. that you're opening mm-hmm. up. I see right. that you're ready. Right. Don't worry about like I'll bring you the person, you know, I'll, I'll yes. fill that vacuum but first, you, you have this heart posture of like, Lord, we want this. You know, we, we want yes. outsiders to come into this space.
1: And it makes me think, I wonder how often, um, you know, like in this case with Sarah, what would have happened if I had not taken time to pray? Oh, right. I mean, I just went for my run, and I am consumed with thoughts about my own life. And this teacher comes in and, and asks me. Uh, and I would have thought, no, you know, we're really enjoying our life, and, you know, it's too bad. You right. know, and well, maybe we'll we'll pray kind of in a dismissive way, you know, We'll say a prayer. Um, but, but it really was a combination I think. And then because we prayed, we were opening our hearts, but also God, um, God moved in a timing that it was seemed very clear that he was speaking to us. Right. Which gave us the confidence to invite her in with, with, um, with a deep commitment. Right. Uh, so so another and I've got a third uh thing that I see that Jesus did, which is really and i I've just seen this recently looking through the scriptures is that Jesus engaged with those I like to use this phrase on the way so this third idea is, that we can uh, observation that we can make when we look at the life of Jesus is that if you notice so much of his ministry appeared to be spontaneous engagement with those he encountered as he went from town to town, even though he had a plan to travel to this or that specific place, he often stopped and ministered to those on the way who were needy or spiritually hungry. Perhaps the Father showed him these individuals prophetically ahead of time, like when Jesus reports seeing Nathaniel under the fig tree in John one forty eight. However, uh, we don't know that to be true for most of these cases, and, and at least for us, most of us never anticipate ministering to many of the people that God gives us. Right. We can't see Nathaniel or anyone else sitting under the fig tree. Rather, we need to develop spiritual sensitivity to recognize those opportunities and engage when they when they happen, when they're given. Yeah. We see Jesus uh, going into synagogue regularly, and he met with the disciples constantly. However, during these times, as Jesus was teaching, he was often interrupted by demoniacs, children, lepers, those requesting healing or for themselves or for a loved one. We see a sinful woman washing the feet of Jesus with her tears and pouring expensive perfume on his head, when he was having dinner with um, with a, a Pharisee, I believed, And in Luke 5.18, we find Jesus being interrupted by a paralytic lowered through the roof of, by some friends. Oh, that's never happened at our church, Matt. <laughs> um, and what stands out the most about these disruptions is how Jesus reacts. Mm-hmm. The disciples often seemed intent on trying to limit those interruptions. Jesus nearly always responds to these events as opportunities to minister or teach. Wow. Also notice um, how often we see Jesus encounter various disturbances while he was traveling. In Luke 7, 11, Jesus is approached, approaching the town of Nain and he comes across the funeral procession coming out. He was so touched by the pain of the grieving mother that he went to her and told her, don't cry. He then went over to the coffin and raised her son up from the dead. Mm-hmm. In Luke 8, 40, we find the story of Jairus pleading for Jesus to come to his house and heal his daughter. Jesus agrees to go and help her. But before he gets very far, he is touched by the woman with the bleeding condition. He stops and asks about who touched him. Now, recently someone pointed this out to me. How frustrating, I don't know if you've thought about this, Matt, but how frustrating it would have been to Jairus. Totally, yeah. His daughter is dying. He finally got Jesus to go see her. He was desperate. Time was running out. And Jesus graciously changes his plans and agrees to go. Jairus m- may be thinking, maybe there is still time. Now, suddenly, Jesus stops and takes time with this new person. As a father, I'd be crying out, Jesus, you said you would come. What are you doing? Mm. In fact, what the father feared came true. He got news that his daughter had indeed died. Fortunately, it was not too late for Jesus. He continued on this detour and raised the daughter up too. So we see this response also when the blind beggar cries out for mercy in Luke 18. It, this the text says that those leading the way rebuke the man for his impropriety, but Jesus stops asks how he can help, and then heals the man when we see jesus uh, or when Jesus sees Zacchaeus in the tree, he stops and invites him to his house for dinner. Mm. What strikes me in all these cases is that when they don't appear to be on the agenda or on the holy to do list, right at least we do not get any indication of this; rather, Jesus is fully present fully engaged, and exercising the same spiritual power and purpose as if he was speaking to the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So I don't know about those of you who are listening, um, or you, Matt, but I'm such a task-oriented, goal-focused person, and I hate interruptions. Right. Even if I do stop to meet a need, I often do so reluctantly and patiently with a bit of irritation. I try not to show it. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus, on the other hand, seems to have no more important item on his agenda. He's fully present with that person, fully intent on meeting their needs, whether spiritually, emotional or physical. Sometimes I've found that I practice this way of Jesus without even realizing it. Hmm. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is able to break through once in a while and overcome my natural tendencies. So that m- reminds me of, a, um, of a, uh, another person in my life. Um, I'm going to call her Jessica. Uh, and I don't really remember this happening, but she has told uh, various groups that she's been in uh, about this several times. She was a painfully shy ninth grade girl in my science class at North Central. And she had endured a great deal of pain from a parent figure in her life growing up. And one day... She tells everybody that she was sitting by herself in the hallway of the school, overwhelmed by a a sense of loneliness and sadness. And I was walking through the hallway on my way to my room when I saw her. Rather than just acknowledging her as I walked by, I stopped for a few minutes to ask if something might be wrong. Perhaps my flesh focus was turned down a few notches, or my spiritual antenna was unusually high that day. Whatever the reason, she claims it meant a lot to her, and she started coming to my classroom before and after school to hang around, offer to help. Or in the holidays, I really like this. She'd make cookies for me. Nice. So I invited her um, to a monthly Christian student group that I was leading, and she started attending that. And then she started attending a home group after she got out of high school, and then another group. And for the last 15 years, she's been in one iteration of home fellowships or another Hmm. and has been um, deeply involved in her lives in all kinds of ways and all kinds of times. So I've wondered about that too. Why did I stop that particular day and take a little more time than usual? I have no doubt that the Spirit prompted me. But it makes me also wonder, how many more times has the Spirit whispered in my ear or even shouted to me but I was too busy, too consumed with my agenda,
0: Hmm.
1: too worried about tomorrow, too ashamed about yesterday, too full of pride or selfish ambition to hear it all? How many heavenly opportunities have I missed? But I can turn turn it around, turn the question around, and think about the good news is that there is still time. Right. What about the future? I can regret the past, but what about the future? Um, is there time left to catch a few hundred or thousand divine openings before I die? The scripture says that the harvest is plentiful and, and the workers are few. So I believe the harvest is still plentiful and God is still working for work, looking for workers. Mm. If I can get close enough to touch those in need, if I can develop a lifestyle of persistent prayer so I can get God's heart, flow with his power and I'm filled with his word, if I can fine-tune my spiritual ears so I recognize who and when God brings people to me to offer his touch, and if i can join with other brothers and sisters in the faith along um along with me doing the same thing who knows perhaps we could see a revival perhaps we could see that the harvest really is great and the lord was just waiting for us workers
0: hmm. wow i love that so just kind of to to recap um what what kelly's been sharing uh, kind of his three uh, points or recommendations in terms of how do we grow in this practice, uh, we look at the life of Jesus and you see that Jesus was always doing this well. Uh, you open up the Gospel of Luke and it 's almost overwhelming like what what scripture would we pull out today to to demonstrate this? but you see he always had eyes. For the leper, for the unschooled, for the uneducated, for the women who were often kind of marginalized and looked down on in that culture, for the Gentiles mm-hmm. uh, who were complete outsiders in the truest sense to the Jewish community, uh, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the Roman centurion who was part of oppressing his nation, and yet he, he has eyes for that person. Uh, I mean, the gospel accounts are just packed with these stories. And yet, I think one of the biggest differences when we kind of take our lives And hold it up against the life of Jesus well the first one it usually has to do with like healing and the miraculous and and that sort of thing but the other big difference that often shows up is just the way that he related to people who were on the margins who didn't have hope uh, who were questioning whether or not they could like fit into this community and this movement uh, that Jesus was leading and so I think that's a huge area Uh, for potential growth for us in our discipleship when we hold and and as a side note i think there's actually a connection between going to the lost and hopeless and the miraculous that happens yes like we could do a whole other sermon on like the relationship between god bringing about physical healing and the role that that actually plays in evangelism and reaching people and they're deeply deeply connected Mm -hmm. but I i don't want to get sidetracked with that but it's just to say that this is a huge opportunity, I think, for us to grow and becoming like Jesus. That's the yes. whole point of this series. Yes. How do you grow in your discipleship and end your life looking far more like Jesus than you do right now today? Well, part of it has to be breaking out of this sort of inward-facing mentality. Um, and we have all our, our reasons in our back pocket why we shouldn't you know, be facing outward and creating mm. inroads for people. Mm. Um, but I, I love the three points that you brought up. So just to recap, one is incarnation, which was kind of that model of like going into the frat house, which you got to be spirit led on that stuff. (laughs) Uh, you know, like actually ask God if that's the thing he wants you to do. leaving
1: your comfort zone.
0: Right. Yeah. Being able to leave comfort where the comfort zone are. and saying, hey, I'm going to make a deep commitment to a number of people. I'm not just going to do like, we, we always think, oh, engage the outsider. That means it's a separate ministry where yeah. I need to, uh, I guess this is a little dated, but I need to print a track yeah. and go hand it out. Or I need to just go encounter strangers yeah. as I hand something out on the street. And it's like, that." Ah. Yeah, I'm not going to discount that, yeah. but I think the real like meat of it is the people who are in your life. Like who's in your life right now? Do you have uh non-Christian friends, non-Christian family that you're actually connecting with, loving, uh incarnating the yes. love of God into their lives. So that was point 1. Point two was um, just developing a habit of persistent prayer because I agree. I think we think about like strategy and we, and oh, how do we do that? I just need to think of the right words to say. I need the right strategies or the right track or whatever it is versus Really seeing a deep connection between what happens when I pray, mm-hmm. how that affects my heart and openness to the spirit, but also how that affects the hearts of others that would never be moved by my words if I hadn't prayed for them first. Right. Uh, and so I think there's a huge part there of saying, God, give me eyes to see and empower me in your spirit to to do this. Jesus says, Don't even leave Jerusalem. You've seen everything. Factually, you've got it all down. You have you think you have the words, but don't mm-hmm. leave Jerusalem to go and witness until you've received the power of the Spirit. Yeah. Yes. and so I think there's a huge connection there and then your last point um, which was I don't know how to sum it up be open to interruption because uh, right. we kind of tend I'm like you I tend to like kind of set my agenda yeah. and I haven't really been struggling a ton with like home isolation because I've always set my own agenda and yeah. just like been self-motivated uh, yeah. but I know that means like I'm going to plan every hour of my day. I'm going to wake up in the morning and write it all out. And when something happens that's not in my plan, I can have that, like, oh, like, oh, seriously, like this person, that (laughs) girl, this whoever, like, no, like, you're asking me for money. Like, come on, like, I'm just trying to get on with my day. Like, this isn't how my 4 p.m. to 5 p.m. block is supposed to go, so please step out of the way. Uh, And yet that's where, like, a ton of the gospel stories, maybe most of them come out of interruptions. Yes. Uh, And so I think there's a beauty in being open to that as well. So, uh, Kelly, maybe you could pray for us, and then uh, we'll go from there.
1: Okay. Thanks for the opportunity. Lord, um, we... um, we're so thankful that we have not only your words of instructions, your commandments, but we have your example that you um led uh your your life, you demonstrated what it means to truly love and especially to love those that don't love us or those who don't um have the same values that we have or don't uh follow you like like we do that you your heart is for the outsiders and we see it in everything in scripture and so we uh, help and pray that you would help us to gain your heart gain your eyes for people and then we would follow your ways of of making time of going where they are of praying for leading and praying for empowerment praying for your heart and then that we would respond as you lead us and that we would be faithful um, to, to really demonstrate uh, these principles and demonstrate your kingdom uh, to the world and help us to, to do it in practical ways, in real ways, to get in the, in the mire and the muck and the, um, the ugliness at times of people's lives and to love them like you loved us.
0: Amen. Amen. Well, thanks so much for listening in. We love and appreciate all of you guys and are excited uh, to be able to gather again in the future. We are going to um, continue some of this conversation in our midweek podcast this week and what it looks like to engage the outsider in the midst of uh, COVID-19. But in the meantime, um, thanks so much for gathering with us. We will see you in missional communities or uh, gather together here next Sunday. Oh, wait. No, no, no. Don't gather. Shelter at home. Shelter at home, people. Thank you.